goal this morning is rejoicing. We rejoice in the advance of the gospel, no matter the cost to us. We rejoice at the prospect of Christ being glorified through our bodies. Father, it is our eager expectation and hope that you would be pleased to dwell among us today. God, it is our expectation. We are craning our necks. We're lifting our heads to the horizon. It is the hope. Not a hope of, man, I sure hope that happens, but Father, it is the hope of, God, we expect you, we desire you, we long for you to find pleasure in dwelling among us today. Father, hear our prayers and see fit to supply the Spirit of Jesus Christ this morning. May the Spirit come and convict us. May He come and empower us. May He come and encourage us. May He come and even rebuke us. Holy Spirit, have Your way among us, conforming us into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that You would take these words that I will proclaim and that You would employ them for Your glory. Would Christ be magnified today through the preaching of these words. And in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, we find ourselves continuing our trek in our series. Series is called Philippians, A Citizen's Guide to City Living. Um, As we've said before, we are just working our way through the book of Philippians. It'll take us to um, early summer, early uh, July. And so what we're going to do is continue our trek this morning by looking at Paul's words to the Philippians, and specifically, we're looking at what we're calling his missionary report. We're going to see um, Paul in next week use this language, and we're going to see him use this language later in the book of Philippians, but Paul is using some certain terms, some, some certain phrases that help us understand what he's driving at as he's writing this letter to the book of Philippians. It's Phrases and words like this, citizens, heavenly citizens. He's talking about this idea of dual citizenship. As he's pressing into the lives of the Philippians, he is making one point very clear, very simple as this, that yes, now that you are believers in Jesus Christ, you are citizens of the heavenly city. You are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You have dual citizenship. It is true you are citizens of the city of Philippi in the Roman Empire, but you are not just merely that. There is something more to you, and it is this. You are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians as a community of heavenly citizens, encouraging them to live out the gospel in the present as they await its future completion. So last week, we looked at the front half of Paul's missionary report. We said this is something that's a unique feature to the book of Philippians. Usually, Paul gives an update of what's going on in his life at the end of a book. In the letter to the Philippians, he moves it to the front, and instead of it being a short snippet in his life, he actually expounds quite a bit on what's actually going on in his life. And last week, we looked at that front half, verses 12 through 18, and we see that Paul is letting people know what's going on in his life because of the outflow of affection he has for them. It's an exuberant outburst. He's talking about how he's remembering them and 
all of his remembrance, how he's praying for them, making his prayer with joy, how he's exuberant in this truth, this thing that he knows for sure that he who began a good work in them, this God, our God, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And once he prays for them, he goes into this outburst, this, this rejoicing, this missionary report, letting them know what is going on in their life. The Philippians were marked as a people who had great, deep, intimate care for their brother Paul. Paul was the one who came preaching the gospel to them. Paul was the one who showed up in Philippi with Christ on his lips. Paul used, God used Paul's preaching to turn the hearts of people like Lydia, the Philippian jailer, the little girl who was demon-possessed making money for her masters. And through the preaching of Christ crucified, God planted a church, a kingdom outpost in the city of Philippi. And Paul, what he's doing is writing to them, encouraging them. This is a book of practicality. It is, a, it is a way in which Paul is saying, here is how the practical implications of the gospel, of the good news that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is your only hope of salvation. Repent and place your faith in him. That is how you have fellowship with the Father, this truth of the gospel. What does that mean for eight to five work? What does this mean for life, relationships, unity within the church? the way you think about finances, all these, sorts of, all these sorts of things. And Philippians answers that question. So as I said, the mis- missionary report splits in two. And really, there is a past idea that's going on in this missionary report. There is a present idea that's going on, and there's a future idea. Last week, we looked at the past and the present. He said, hey, brothers, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. So we said that it's like Paul is writing his letter He knows the Philippians have care for him. They have partnered with him. They've been praying for him. So he says, let me tell you exactly what has happened. Let me give you a report on what has happened in my life that took me from some past events up until this moment in which I'm in prison in a Roman jail cell, and I'm writing you this letter. So he looks back in the past, and he says, hey, these things have happened to me. And we said, you can go read about these things that have happened to him in Acts 21 through 28. Then he says, all of these things that have happened to me, near assassinations, nearly shipwrecked and drowned at sea, people beating me, people running us out of town, all of these things have took me to this point where I'm in present in a Roman jail cell, and I'm sitting here preaching the gospels, how the book of Acts ends, and what we see is that it's stirring people up. The gospel is advancing. He said, these are things that are happening right now. My suffering, my affliction is cause for advancement of the gospel. It's advancing in the Gentile world. It's advancing beyond the boundaries of Christianity. It's advancing within the boundaries of Christianity. Brothers are being stirred up. Brothers are preaching. The Spirit is moving, and He explodes with this exuberant outburst of praise in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So he looks at those past events, and he catches the Philippians up in that missionary report of what's going on in the present. And then just as a door turns on its hinges, verse 18 serves that hinge that turns Paul from looking to past events in his life that brought him to the present place where the advancement of the gospel is taking place. It's pushing forward at rapid speed. 
And then he swings like a hinge on verse 18, and he turns, and what he does is he looks to the future. He looks to the future, and this is what's going to happen as we look at these verses here. He looks back in the past and says, my life has been employed by God to bring glory to Christ. My life is being used in the present to advance the gospel, and then he's going to turn to the future, and he's going to stop, and it's almost like we, as like a, like a fly on the wall, get to eavesdrop onto Paul's personal thoughts as he considers what his future is going to be. He's in a Roman jail cell. This isn't pleasant circumstances. There is the legitimate option of death. And so what we're going to see is Paul just talking out loud, and he's going to seek to encourage the Philippians that, yes, it is true, these past and these present things are here, but let me tell you another way in which I desire to rejoice. And just as that door turns on its hinge, that's what he does. He turns, and he's just launched into praise about the advancement of the gospel, and then he's going to turn and he's going to see this singular particular event, this, this particular event of his imprisonment, and he's going to glorify Christ, and he's going to promote this in front of the Philippians, and he's going to show them my highest aim, my highest aim in life, the thing that I eat, the thing that I sleep, the thing that I breathe, the thing that consumes me, the grid that I run my life against, the grid that I run my relationships against, the, the grid that I run the places I go to, the things I see, the things I say, everything, my all-consuming compassion is to see Christ glorified. So last week we noted that the heavenly citizens, we are to rejoice. Paul teaches us that heavenly citizens are to rejoice at the advancement of the gospel. And this week he's going to ride right on the coattails of that idea. And in the same missionary report, he's going to show the Philippians that as heavenly citizens they are to rejoice at the hope of glorifying Christ even at the expense of their body. Heavenly citizens are to rejoice at the hope of glorifying Christ. And this text, this Last part of 18 down through verse 26 is going to split into three ways. We're going to see that Paul's ambition is that Christ be glorified. He's going to rejoice because he has this one all-consuming ambition. It is to see Jesus Christ honored, to see him magnified. We're going to see that in verses 18b, that last part of 18 through verses 20. We're going to see that Paul has a desired outcome of what he desires in the midst of his imprisonment. He has a desire that... I want to be with Christ. I want to see Christ. I want to walk with Christ. Now I've served Christ faithfully and now I have this all-consuming desire. I, I desire to be with Jesus right now. We're going to see this in verses 21 through 24. But then Paul draws the conclusion that his expected outcome is opposite of what he desires. That his expected outcome is that he is truly going to remain with the Philippians. This is what he believes is going to happen to him, and we're going to see this in verses 25 and 26. So let's turn our attention to the last part of 18, verse 18b through 20. We're going to see that Paul's ambition is that Christ be glorified. So he says this, yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This section of Paul's missionary report has taken a decidedly future tense. 
For all the grammarian nerds out there, the people of us who really like grammar, everything in this section of Paul's missionary report, his verbs are all in the future tense. He's constantly saying, listen, I'm, I'm looking to the future. I'm, I'm thinking about what's going to happen to me. I'm looking to you guys, um, and I'm wondering how it's going to turn out for you. I'm looking um, at my current situation. I'm wondering how it's going to turn out for me. And so it's constantly future-oriented, future-oriented. Paul is currently in prison. But in his mind's eye, he's looking forward to his impending trial. So as he writes to the Philippians, he wants to assure them that his current situation is yet another reason for rejoicing. He wants to assure the Philippian believers that as they're praying for him, as they're hearing reports about him, as they're even sending people to him to check up on him, he wants them to know, nothing in my position has changed. Yes, I am in jail. Yes, there is the possibility of death, but you need to know that I look to this and I rejoice. Paul has one consuming ambition in this imprisonment. As he looks to his future trial and he stares it in the face, his ambition is to see Christ glorified, whether by life or by death. And we see Paul exuding with confidence. We see that he has confidence in God's power to deliver. This is in Verse 19, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The this that he's talking about is his current circumstances, his imprisonment, everything that's come up. He sort of scans back and he pans back and he looks at just everything that's been going on in his life, all the events of Acts 21 through 28, all the events that he's just talked about that are taking place in Rome, his particular imprisonment that he's talking about, he says, this, this thing, this imprisonment, this current circumstance, I know it is a confidence assurance in God that God is going to turn and work this for my deliverance. And what he's actually doing there is he's pulling and citing from Job. There's a section in Job where Job says this exact phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it comes from a portion of the book of Job where Job's friends are coming up and are basically accusing him saying, Job, the only legitimate reason why all these bad things are happening to you is because you're full of iniquity, you're wicked, and you're a sinner. And Job makes the defense before God going, no, God, I I know this. I know my life circumstances. I know my life's events are not because I'm wicked, not because I'm full of iniquity, not because I'm just doing all these unrighteous things. And this is God's grand hand bringing down some sort of punishment and wrath upon me. But I know that these circumstances in particular, as bad as they may seem, God is going to turn this out for my deliverance. That term deliverance carries the idea of salvation. It carries the idea of vengeance. Indication. Somehow, God is going to use these particular events in my life to bring glory to my name. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here to us. He's writing the Philippians saying, don't look at my Roman imprisonment as something to be looked down upon. Don't feel sorry for me because I have this. I have a confident assurance that Jesus Christ will turn this for my deliverance and in so doing, magnify his name. Paul has a confidence rooted in the Philippians' prayers and the subsequent supply of the Holy Spirit. You see that Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. I will explode with an outburst of praise. Why, Paul? He says this, because I know. I know these things, my current circumstances, will turn out for my deliverance. 
And he says, these current circumstances that will turn out for my deliverance ride on the backs of your prayers and the subsequent supply, the subsequent help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Not only is Paul's confidence in God's power to deliver, but it's rooted in the Philippians' prayers and the subsequent supply of the Holy Spirit. Paul's confidence wasn't rooted in thin air. This isn't like feel-good-ism. Hopefully, if I just think enough good thoughts about what's going on here, then maybe it'll turn out for my good. This isn't wishing upon a star. Man, this is really bad, but if I just don't look at it, maybe if I just sweep it under the rug, maybe if I just really, you know, will it as much as I possibly can that somehow the cosmic stars will align and this will turn out for my good. Paul says baloney to that. He says, no, listen, God is in control. God is orchestrating these things in my life. And I am confident this will turn out for my prayers. This will turn out for my deliverance. And it's rooted on your prayers. And your prayers for me are that the Spirit would come and enable me and empower me. And these things are in turn strengthen me to know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The Philippians' prayers for Paul and the subsequent supply of the Holy Spirit become the grounds for which Paul rests his ambition. He desires to honor Christ, and as the saints pray for him, and as God answers their prayers and strengthens him with the Spirit, Paul rejoices because this becomes the very thing that will enable him to achieve what he wants to achieve. What does he want to achieve? And that is his third confidence, confidence that Christ will be honored. Verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will will be honored whether by life or by death. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, Christ will be honored in my body. See, Paul realizes as he's throwing down the situation, what we don't need to do is like look at Paul like he's Iron Man, right? Captain America. Some superhero of the New Testament. You know, Superman, cape flowing, big letter P, on his chest, Paul, right? Standing up there, imprisonment, no big deal. Right? Paul, Paul's real, man. He's like me and you. We're going to get an intimate look into this here. When we look at verses 21 through 24, he's going to be like, listen, man, this could turn out for my death. I mean, Paul isn't in, in a state of bloodlust where he's longing for his death for the sake of just death. So he he recognizes, yes, that when I look at the future and I see my impending trial, there are really two avenues of approach that I could go down when I think about my looming trial. One avenue of approach is that I could go forward and be ashamed. I I could go forward and and chicken out. I could go forward and, and wimp out. I could stand before my judges and feel shame for Christ or even to feel shame over this situation, which is being in prison for, for Christ. That, that is a possibility, but my desire isn't that. My, my, my desire, my eager expectation, my hope is that when I look at this trial that I see that's coming, trial in the literal sense of standing before judges who are either going to decide Paul goes free or Paul's, Paul dies, and trial in the sense of just being here in this life, the season of life, the stage of life, 
It is my eager expectation to hope that I will not be at all ashamed, that I will not travel the path of shame, but that I will walk with full courage now as always. Paul is praying and asking and seeking and talking to the Philippians. Brothers and sisters, pray for me. Pray that through the help of the Spirit that my eager expectation, my, my longing and my hope that I would own this situation with courage and step into it with boldness. Not boldness rooted in me, but boldness rooted in the sovereignty of God that God will employ this suffering, that God will employ this imprisonment, this affliction for the exaltation of Christ. See, this is Paul's eager expectation and hope. And I, and I love what one commentator said, Ralph Martin. He says, Paul's eager expectation denotes a state of keen anticipation of the future. The craning of the neck to catch a glimpse of what lies ahead. The concentrated, intense hope which ignores other interests and strains forward as with outstretched head. It's almost like Paul is saying, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a really funky word in the original language. It's like a head that is lifted up and like outstretched as it's like seeking and craning and looking to the future going, I have this eager expectation. I'm, I'm longing, I'm looming, going, man, I, I believe God is going to use this for my deliverance. And when I'm in that moment, Philippians, pray for me so that Christ will be exalted. He has a hope, that eager expectation and hope. And when you read hope in the Bible, you have to understand that the hope is not expressed as desire, something good that one would like to have in, something good that one would like to have happen. Man, I sure hope the St. Louis Cardinals will win the World Series this year. You know, like, it's not that kind of hope. It's not looking going, man, you know, I'm not sure. I'm sort of wavering. I would like it to happen. not sure if it's going to happen. I, I hope the Cardinals win the World Series. But when you look at hope in the Bible, it always comes as expectation, something good that one knows is going to happen and so anticipates. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. It's almost like he's saying, it's my eager expectation and my expectation upon expectation that expectation will come to fruition. He's just compounding all these words to show us that he's not really wavering here and it's riding on the coattails of the Philippians' prayers and the subsequent supply of the Spirit. Paul has an ambition and it is that Christ be glorified. So when Paul's thinking through in this way, then he steps back. What we get is this unique little, little exchange. Verses 21 through 24 where Paul goes... In light of what is going on here, my desire, my hope, my expectation is that Christ be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And it's almost like he's like, oh yeah, life and death. Man, this has really got me thinking about life and death. And then he rolls right into verses 21 through 24, and he talks about life and death. The current situation prompts his mind's eye to roll to the future And to realize, you know, because he's going to tell us here in a little bit, I am confident in this. I know that I am going to be released. But the fact that he's in a Roman jail cell, that there is a legitimate possibility of death, what we get is this deep insight into the Apostle Paul's thinking. And it's one of the most grand little bits of Scripture that we have. It's, I mean, this is coffee mug verses that we're going to be reading here in verses 21 through 24. For, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. I mean, these are famous verses that stand out in the book of Philippians. 
But it's interesting where it's coming because Paul says, I have a desired outcome. If I could choose what happens to me, I would choose one way. But I realize that I'm not in control of what is necessarily going to happen to me. God is in control, and we'll see that leads him to speak of what he realizes is going to actually be the actual outcome. So when you look at verses 21 through 24, Paul says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, up to this point, Paul's primary concern has been with the advance of the gospel through his imprisonment and Christ being glorified through his trial. Now he turns to personal reflection. Although the apostle assumes he will go free, the final words of verse 20 raises the possibility of execution. And what he sets out to explain is his desire for Christ to be glorified, even if the verdict were go against him. So picking up on those final words of verse 20, whether by life or by death, Paul gives us this personal, this intimate insight. If any of you guys have ever seen a play, if any of you guys have ever watched theater, there's a certain tool that can be employed by the one who's writing the play called a soliloquy. And a soliloquy is basically the way the writer desires to convey information to somebody, but it's when there's just a single actor up on stage and basically he's talking out loud as if you were hearing the words in his head. So the person isn't interacting with somebody and you're not eavesdropping on a conversation, but this soliloquy is a particular way in which it's a device used by writers in plays and theater and acting, those kinds of things, where it's basically someone's just getting up and they're talking out loud as if you were just hearing the words that are going on in their head. And in a sense, that is exactly what's going on in verses 21 through 24. It's like we're eavesdropping in on Paul's intimate thoughts and how he views life and how he views death. Paul basically says, there's two options for me. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He has the opportunity of life. To live as Christ, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. He has the opportunity of death. To die as gain, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So when Paul considers the possible outcomes that lay before him as potential results of his trial, he truly finds himself hard-pressed between the two. It's almost like the language that's going on when Paul is talking is like a tug of war that's going on. We're on equal ends of the rope. You have one 250-pound muscular guy. On the other end, you have another equally strong in every way, 250-pound muscular guy. And they're both pulling with all their might. And Paul's just sitting there right in the middle, and he just feels the tug. He feels the stress. He feels the strain. There's not one way that's pulling him. One way or the other, it's this pairing, it's this pulling, it's this hard being pressed. He, he's like, man, you know, to, to, to live is Christ. I love Christ. Christ is my everything. But to, to die is also gain. It's also to get Christ upon Christ because then I'd actually be able to see the one for whom I love and live and preach and go on missions and teach and travel I'll actually get to stand in the presence of the one where I have all these stripes upon my backs and the one for whom I've been beaten. I mean, to, to die is gain. Death will usher him into the immediate presence of the Lord. And for Paul, this is clearly marked in the column of gain. But the gain for Paul is also something more. Death is also gain because it is gain for the proclamation of the gospel. 
So he's torn there. He realizes that if I am to be martyred, if I am to die, it is gain. Gain for me because I get to see the one whom my heart desires. And it is also gain for the gospel, the very thing that I love as well. Because then people will look upon me and my martyrdom, my death, and it will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, we have life. It's Christ. Paul knew that living is Christ because he would continue to serve him while he lived. Paul trusted. Paul loved. Paul served. Paul witnessed for in every way was devoted to and dependent upon Christ. His only hope, his only purpose, his only reason to live was Christ. He traveled for Christ. He preached for Christ. He was persecuted for Christ. He was imprisoned for Christ. Paul's desired outcome is clearly to depart and be with Christ. I mean, he even says so there at the end of verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. He rightly recognizes that it is far better to be with Christ in this sense, yet he keenly feels the pressure of these two forces putting him in this, in this binder. But this personal desire to part and be with Christ must be subordinated to his pastoral responsibilities. Verse 24 comes up on the stage and he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's like he's filling these scales where he has these, these bouncing scales in front of him and he sets up here on one, death. Death is gain. Death is getting Christ upon Christ. Then he sets over on the other side of the scale, life, pastoral ministry, the responsibility to be the apostle to the Gentiles and the call to go and pronounce and proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel, who are dying and going to hell if they do not hear the gospel, people who will spend eternity apart from God if they do not repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. And when he sets those two things on the scale, what happens? The weightier issue is this, life. And that's where he comes in verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. This proves to be the heavier weight. And so he realizes he has a desired outcome, which is to die now in this moment and be with Christ, but realizes that God is calling him to something else, to continue his pastoral ministry to these beloved brethren, and he does so. He moves on. And that what takes us to how Paul expresses his expected outcome to remain with the Philippians. That's verses 25 and 26. He says, convinced of this. Convinced of what? Convinced that it is more necessary on your account that I remain, that I live. Because I'm convinced of this, I know. I know. Again, it's that knowing that we saw back in verse 19. I know that I will remain and continue with you all. I am confident in this, that somehow I will be released from prison, that I will remain, that I will live, that I will continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith so that this result may come about so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul is convinced that his remaining with them will bear two immediate results in their lives. The immediate reason Paul is convinced that he will remain is for the progress and joy in the faith. That progress is the same idea, the same word that's carried forward when Paul says the progress of the gospel, the advance of the gospel. He's glorying, he's rejoicing, he's saying, I have joy, the gospel is progressing, the gospel is advancing. And then he caps the end of his missionary report with this, I have an equal joy, an equal joy in an equal progress that is going on. And it is progress in faith, your faith, Philippians, and so I'm rejoicing in this truth. 
But the ultimate reason Paul is convinced that he will remain is that his release from prison and coming to them will cause their boasting in Christ Jesus to overflow. If he is released from prison and has the opportunity of seeing them again, they will have even more reason for exulting in Christ Jesus on his account. And this makes Paul just explode with joy. So if you could step back and you could just recap what's going on here. The way Paul is thinking about this future aspect, you could say something like this. Paul says, by a fresh supply of the Spirit of Jesus, Paul expects his hope to be fulfilled, that Christ will be magnified whether Paul lives or dies. For to live means Christ, and to die means to gain Christ. And if he had a choice, he would choose death, but that would mean, for that would mean to be with Christ. But since he has no choice, Life is the expected outcome leading to his return to Philippi and their overflow of joy in Christ Jesus. Paul's expected outcome is to remain with the Philippians, further joy and progress in the faith. So when we look at this part of Paul's missionary report, how can we respond to this? What, what is going on here that Paul, that Paul models for us? Last week we said Paul became a model for us on what does it look like to rejoice no matter what's going on in our life, to say, God, use me. Spend me. I am yours. If it takes me being in prison, may the gospel advance. If it takes me being on the receiving end of affliction, may the gospel advance. If it takes me being shipwrecked, may the gospel advance. And in a similar way, he carries that same idea over, and no longer is it just this broad scheme, this broad idea of may the gospel advance no matter the cost, but Paul presses it home specifically to the point of giving your life up, you living or dying for the advancement of the gospel. He makes it very personal and says, what is your love for Christ? Are you willing to die for Christ? See, Paul's missionary port is a joy explosion, right? The word joy, rejoicing, I'm sure you guys have heard this before, the word joy in the book of Philippians pops up all over the place, but I mean it is just dripping from the verses of 12 through 26, and notice that it's always at his expense. It's always at his expense. It's always, I'm being afflicted, I'm rejoicing. I'm in prison, I'm rejoicing. All these things that I am suffering, and that's causing me to rejoice. He's rejoicing in the advancement of the gospel. He is rejoicing at the hope of glorifying Christ through his life or through his death. This paragraph is framed by joy. Paul's joy as he anticipates Christ being magnified at his trial and their joy when his expected return to Philippi is realized. This future aspect of Paul's missionary report is like a big frame. It's like bookends. On the front end, Paul says, hey, I'm rejoicing here. Don't be confused. My imprisonment is causing me to rejoice because it will exalt Jesus. Then he says, hey, he, hey everybody on the back end, pay, pay attention here. I'm rejoicing in this situation because when I show up to you after I believe Christ is going to release me, it's going to lead to your joy, not just joy in me, but seeing me and joy in exalting Christ. And this is our highest aim, is to rejoice in Jesus Christ. But there's this odd little thing that happens in the midst of these bookends, right? It's, I'm rejoicing at my trial. I'm rejoicing at the prospect of coming to you. Then right there in the middle, 21 through 24, we get this odd little soliloquy, this odd little turning of a phrase in Paul's head. You know what? 
to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he sort of waxes eloquent on life and death. And it's like, man, what, what is the flow there? What's going, what's going on there? In the middle of these joy bookends, we have this insight into Paul and his reflection on life and death. And when you just glance at it, it's seemingly out of place. Like, man, that's sort of bizarre. Like, what's the flow there? But Paul saying, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, puts everything else into focus. It's the fulcrum upon which these joy bookends rotates. See, Paul is Christ-centered. Paul consumes Christ. Paul exudes Christ. You cut Paul, he bleeds Christ. He eats Christ. He sleeps Christ. He loves Christ. He preaches Christ. He desires Christ. Desires, desires, desires. Every thought is consumed with Christ. Paul loves Jesus Christ, and so when you come and you see these verses in 21 through 24, it is an intimate look into a brother in the faith who says, the reason why I can have joy and suffering, and the reason why I can exalt Christ, and the reason why you guys can exalt in Jesus when I show up for you is because of life. my life is consumed by Christ. See, Paul's Christ-centeredness, zero gravity for Paul is Christ. The nucleus of Paul's life is Christ. This Christ-centeredness is astounding, and he models for us what it looks like to exalt Christ, whether in life or death. Listen, the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith revolves around their understanding, this all-consuming, Christ-centered way of thinking. Paul's desire for them and for us is to understand this and to live in such a way. Because later, what he's going to do is he's going to hold up for them, brothers, imitate me in this way. The Philippians aren't there. This is part of the reason why he says, I really believe God is taking me to you because you guys still have room to grow. You guys are still suffering with division. You guys are still suffering in the way you relate to each other. You guys are still suffering from opponents, people who are creeping in on you and persecuting you and bringing harm to you. And he says, in the midst of this, the way that you love Jesus, exalt Jesus, is by being consumed with this. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's desire for the Philippians, and subsequently us, is to understand that what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die in gain, is the way that we live to exalt Jesus. But see, our biggest problem is that we speak in such a way, but in reality, we live differently. Right? We would like to say and look at verse 21 and go, man, yeah, yeah, for, for me, yeah, Paul, I, I agree with you. For, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But see, our biggest problem is that our words coming out of our mouth are completely negated by the actions of our lives, by the thoughts in our heads by the things we say or the things we do. See, we often say, for, for me to live is to have Christ. But then we want to do some sort of like mathematics here and go, well, and plus work. Like if I have a good job and Jesus, then that's to, to live for Christ. For me to live is to have Christ plus leisure, plus accumulating wealth, plus relationships. But Far too often, the plus factor of this sentence becomes our primary passion. Because see, the moment you add something for, for me to live as Christ plus have health, the moment your health fades, 
then what happens is Christ usually fades with it. Or the moment we try to add something to that phrase, to live is Christ plus be wealthy, what often happens is the passion of our heart latches onto the thing that is not Christ. Then to where we come to that point and we're no longer saying, for me to live is to have Christ, but we come to that place where we start to say, for me to live is to have my job, is to have health, to have a good family, to have leisure. But our progress and joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent or is not contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular of passion. See, when we come to this place and what we, what we do is we go, man, you know what? I want to say this. I will say this, but my life doesn't match. Verse 21 constitutes a powerful test for us all. If you put a blank after the phrase, to live is and another blank after the phrase, and to die is, how would you fill in those blanks? See, this is a great question for counseling when you're just trying to work through. If you can come to somebody, or you can even talk to yourself in this way to go, if only blank, then blank. And however you fill in those sentences, that's going to reveal sort of the attitude and the nature of your heart. If only I had a better job, then I would be happy. Well, then what's going on in your heart is you're banking a lot of hope and happiness in something that is as temporary as a job. If only my wife would respect me, then I wouldn't be so angry. If only my child would obey me, then I wouldn't fly off the handle all the time. And as you think in those terms and you think in those ways, the way you fill in those blanks then becomes a diagnostic tool for you to see what is the ruling idol of your heart, what is ruling on the throne of your heart. And in a similar way, this phrase that we see in verse 21 comes to us as a diagnostic tool. How would you fill in the blanks? To live is blank and to die is blank. If you say to live is money, you must say to die is to leave it all behind. If you say to live is fame, you must say to die is to be forgotten. If you say to live is pleasure, you must say to die is to lose it all. But if you can join Paul in saying to live is Christ, you can also join him in saying to die is gain. And that's where Paul is taking us. That's why it's that fulcrum. It seems so odd and so out of place. But what he's doing is he's teaching the Philippians and he's teaching us that if we can come along with him and the true desire of our heart is to say to live is Christ and to die is gain, then we then have a lens, we have a worldview, we have a grid that we then start looking through the world and going, okay, I don't care if blessing or cursing comes, good or bad comes, hard or easy comes, money or no money comes, respect or no respect, fame or no fame come, no matter what comes my way, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in that I rejoice because the absolute end result of a life style marked by that is the exaltation of Christ which causes Paul's rejoicing and which in turn should cause us to rejoice as well. Let's pray. Christ, we love you and we thank you for these words. I pray that you would take them and you would apply them to our hearts. Help us where we don't see clearly on how this applies. Spirit, I pray that you would do that work. And Father, where you have clearly opened our eyes to see how this applies, God, I would pray that you would do 
do your work there as well? Would we not run from this truth, but we, would we allow this truth to live as Christ, to die as gain, to be a diagnostic tool that helps us sort through our life? God, this is a spirit-infused thing. This is something that is done by the Spirit leading us. And so that's what I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ, is that you would lead us to exalt Jesus in this way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.